Now of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. 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 Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades and compañeros, welcome to a special edition of the fifth column podcast. I'll do that cadence just like Camille. (laughs) And if you're listening to this, uh, you might have gotten it uh, through our Patreon, which we've finally launched, and you will have gotten this early. If uh, you haven't gotten it early, we do stagger this a little bit and eventually give it to you cheapskates who don't uh, help us defray our costs by subscribing. But if you don't, we, hold, we don't hold it against you. I mean, we do, but we just don't tell you that. Um, a very special one this time, one I was quite um, excited to do, um, Errol Morris, who I think is probably America's most famous documentarian, because if not Errol, uh, then maybe Ken Burns? So we got Errol Morris to come into the studio, and I did a one-on-one with him uh, about a week ago, a little over a week ago, when his film, American Dharma, uh, opened in New York. It was opening the following day um, in Los Angeles. But the interesting thing about this is Morris, who you, if you don't know him, you might have seen one of his films, um, Active Killing, uh, Unknown Knowns, which is a, a, a film about Donald Rumsfeld, um, which was his famous in Terratron, where he you know, looks down the barrel of the camera to his subject. Um, and the most famous one, of course, The Fog of War, um, most famous recent one, which is an incredible film about Robert McNamara, one of the architects of the Vietnam War. And the funny thing about that film is it actually brought him to the film he just made because Steve Bannon, who is the subject of American Dharma, tells Errol Morris in the film American Dharma that he was profoundly influenced uh, in his politics by (laughs) watching the film about uh, Robert McNamara and seeing these horrible technocrats that uh, ruin the world. And Morris is a bit taken aback by this. But um, So we sat down, um, and we discussed that film, uh, his newest film. We discussed uh, his film, Dr. Death, a kind of overlooked one from, I think, 1999, and about a guy named Fred Leuchter, which I think he pronounces Leuchter, or Leuchter, uh, a Bostonian with a heavy Boston accent who makes... Um, uh, Death row devices, shall we say? How does how does one put this? Execution devices is what I'm trying to say. And he also became quite a notable Holocaust denier. So Morris does an incredible film. We talk about him quite a bit, um, and it's a great meandering conversation. And Morris is a great prickly uh, interviewer, uh, interviewee. He's a great interviewer. On the other end, he's a little a little more difficult. But but uh, I mean that in the most the most positive way. I had a, a fantastic time. But the interesting thing about this film is, is it was shot in 2018 and is now uh, what November 2019. And in the kind of time, if you think about this a little bit where you're making a political film, a contemporaneous political film. That's a lot of time because Steve Bannon's influence has waxed and waned. He's been sort of a friend of the White House. He's been inside the White House. He's been on the outs with the White House. He is now making a podcast from the so-called Breitbart Embassy in uh, Washington, D.C., defending the president from impeachment charges. Uh, So he's all over the place. He's kind of ran all these campaigns in Europe, which I made a little film about for uh, the uh, Vice HBO show. Um, so he's been all over the place. So why hasn't this come out? Well, we're going to talk about that in the in uh, this podcast, but just put it this way. We talk about no platforming because despite the fact that Steve Bannon has had a platform in the White House and running the campaign of the current president, there are a bunch of people who believe that this film shouldn't have been released and he should be no platformed because to hear Steve Bannon is to be poisonously influenced by Steve Bannon. Um, It's crazy, right? So on uh, the Friday that I recorded this, that evening, um, uh, Morris did his his, uh, uh, opening of the film at the Film Forum in New York City. Um, I was going to go, I couldn't make it, and he was doing a one-on-one Q&A with his son, Hamilton Morris, uh, who does, who's a colleague of mine, does a great show on Viceland, where my new show is, by the way. Yeah, the weirdly called impeachment show. But, you know, anyway, watch Hamilton's show, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. So Hamilton Morris is on stage with him, and a friend of mine sends me an email. And it's a a image that says, um, it's a piece of paper, a like inkjet 
kind of printout with a blue piece of tape stuck on the wall of a bathroom in the film form. And there's a quote on this piece of paper. The ethics thing to me is not a terribly interesting argument. Sorry, Errol Morris, IndieWire, 10, 11, uh, 2018. So there's a quote from him here. And then beneath it, it says, there are real world consequences to giving Steve Bannon another platform. Please reconsider supporting this film. Uh, Film Forum provides vouchers in exchange for return tickets. So if you're seeing the premiere of this film, they're asking you uh, with a little piece of paper stuck to the wall in the bathroom uh, to walk out. This is in the stall. So... um, that is uh, what Errol Morris has been facing for even talking to Steve Bannon. So uh, that no platforming idea uh, we discuss uh, along with a lot of other things. So let's just get to it. This is my conversation last week with the great filmmaker Errol Morris. Errol Morris, thanks for joining me. Um, let's talk about the new film. Um, American Dharma, Steve Bannon. This took a while to get to theaters, didn't it? I mean, it, it premiered last September in Venice, and it's coming out now. Why, why the delay? Because no one wanted to distribute the movie. Uh, but it wasn't because it wasn't a good movie. I've seen the movie. It's a terrific movie. But it, it was for political reasons, right? I think it's my best movie. You think it's your best movie? Self-serving of me to say so, but yes, I think it's my best movie. Why do you say that? I mean, you've made some pretty incredible movies. I mean, Fog of War, of course, Known Unknowns. Um, You can go back, Thin Blue Line, obviously. Why is this one better than all those? Because it pushes a lot of techniques that interest me one step further than I've seen them pushed before. No one talks about the movie as a movie. They don't. No. Not really. It's a political statement, and they debate the politics of it, right? Someone asked me, it's a blur, the questions I've been asked in the last (laughs) couple of days, but someone asked me, well, why do people get so infuriated by this movie? Um, What exactly did you do? Actually, it's a line that comes from my son when he was about five or six years old. He said, Dad, don't you know... I'm an annoyifier. And indeed he is. And his father is also evidently an annoyifier. An annoyifier. An annoyifier. <laughs> and why why did people react this way to the film? I don't know. It premieres at the Venice Film Festival to a standing ovation. People, a long standing ovation, right? Long standing ovation through the entire final credit sequence. I go back to my hotel room and I read the first reviews, which are among the nastiest reviews I have ever read. There's one I imagine you're referencing in particular that I was, um, I'm very partisan on this in the sense that I loved the film and I hated all the reviews. The first one that I read was this one in Variety, which seemed to have had a problem with Steve Bannon and not with you. It was, a, it was an extended debate with Steve Steve Bannon's political ideas and didn't engage with the film at all. I mean, that seems to be kind of a common thing. And that seems to be the, the point of contention here is that people don't like Bannon. I mean, this is, I mean, you blamed it at one point, you blamed, the, you know, the, the, the difficulty in distribution on David Remnick. Explain that. Well, I wouldn't blame David Remnick per se in the sense that the claim is that Remnick was out to get me and my movie. Mm-hmm. But in the weeks preceding the Venice premiere, he, this is the great term. He deplatformed Steve Bannon from the New Yorker Festival. And in doing that, and in writing this excuse for why he did it, it was as if he gave permission to everybody. Oh, this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. You deplatform the guy. He can't do any damage, really, if he can't be seen or heard. Well, this is really nutso. Yeah. Um, we're two plus years out. Um, deplatforming Bannon really hasn't happened. But even if it did, do you think that's what's going to make us safe? It's going to protect us from a, uh, an appearance of American fascism? Mm. Is that going to do the trick? That going to make you and your country safe? 
Well, that's the idea, right? I mean, but this isn't this had never come up with any of your other films. I mean, obviously, oh, it could, did. Oh, but did, did it do like uh, uh, with like Fred Leuchter, who's a Holocaust denier, and he's in the film denying the Holocaust. And I don't recall anyone saying, you know, Errol, you shouldn't put him on the screen because there people were, might. There were plenty of people. There were people that did that. Yes. Really? Yes. But is there a, is there a difference <laughs> in degree now that, you know, David Remnick is doing it when people in the media are doing it, it's different, right? What's different now is there's the internet. Mm. And that makes everything different. Um, my electric chair repairman and Holocaust denier, Fred Lucher, I read about on the front page of, guess what? The New York Times. Below the fold, page one, but page one of the New York Times. The article, Can Capital Punishment Be Humane? Uh, the way I always describe it is taking the ouch out of the death penalty. <laughs> I thought it was really going to hurt, and it turned out to be an enormously pleasant experience. So there's this article about Fred designing lethal injection systems, electric chairs, gallows. I guess you would say the whole nine yards. <laughs> and at the very end of the article, they mention he's a Holocaust denier. Yeah. And that he contributed to this infamous pamphlet written by a Canadian-German Neo-Nazi Erd Zundel. Yes. Did six million really die? And the combination of electric chair repairman and Holocaust denier convinced me this is a movie you gotta make. Yeah. In those days, I think today, if that article appeared, there'd be 150,000 documentary filmmakers all over it. <clears throat> Back then, just me, 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 you know, me alone, <laughs> um, not so enough to want to make this movie, which I, I really found interesting. And it's a movie I'm glad I made. There were Jewish activists I'm a Jew, by the way, um, just to make things clear here. I am not a Holocaust denier. I have no reason to believe the Holocaust didn't happen. In fact, I have every reason to believe it did happen because – I'm glad you're clarifying that you're not a Holocaust denier. I lost denier. family members. Yeah. So Jewish activists attacked me for – really, it's not so different than this. What's different is that we live in a, in a different world, um, partly because of the internet. And two years later, it becomes a little clearer to me why all of this happened. And there's a simple reason for it. The 2016 election was one of the great, great, nightmares and tragedies in American history. People talk about where they were when JFK was assassinated. People all know where they were when Trump became president of the United States. It was a horrible night. What was your reaction that evening? Horror. Horror. It still is horror. Still Total, horror. complete horror. <laughs> so I'm getting it. You're not a huge Trump fan. Uh, but, you know, is that one of the reasons you want to talk to Biden? So, so well, it's, of course it's a yeah. reason. Um, but America responded to it. Uh, I'm suggesting America is this biological entity, but many people responded to it through denial. Hmm. Um, you know, what's the stupid line? You know, denial isn't just a river in hmm. Egypt. Yeah. Uh, they wanted it to go away. And, they, and still do. They wanted it, uh, or Bannon calls it the nullification campaign. They still do. Mm -hmm. All they want to do is nullify the 2016 election. Well, sure they do. Yeah, he's not wrong. I'll fess up. Yeah, he's yeah. not wrong. Yeah. yeah. But he won. Yeah. I'm sorry. He won the election. Yeah. And it 
behooves us not to pretend that he didn't. Nothing to be gained. It, it behooves us to figure out how this happened mm. and to prevent it from ever happening again. But the argument to you, made by clever people, like people like David Remnick, who pulled the plug on Bannon, is that to give these people oxygen to, quote-unquote, platform them, is to spread ideas that are already in the White House. It's a kind of a baffling thing that we shouldn't be kind of investigate why these these ideas are popular. I mean, I, I read a review of, of uh, the film yesterday, probably one of the worst reviews I've read of any film in, in, in a long time. It just didn't make a, tel- a, t- a terrible amount of sense. But there was an idea that Steve Bannon ideas are incoherent. They're not incoherent at all. They're perfectly coherent. And I thought the great thing about the film was getting at that sense that people don't quite realize that Steve Bannon, when they talk about him as a sort of neo-Nazi and a fascist and the rest of it, that he is in some senses a left-wing populist and in some senses a right-wing populist. I mean, there's parts of that film where he sounds like Bernie Sanders, right? There's a chameleon-like quality to Bannon. Can I call it left-wing populism? Not really. I had a conversation with Noam Chomsky, of all people, who now lives in Tucson. He's no longer in Cambridge. He's no longer in Cambridge. He comes to Cambridge occasionally, but he's getting up there in age. And the weather is better in Tucson. He's in Tucson uh, than it is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he said that he had met Bannon in Tucson and that they could agree on many of the problems in America, but not really agree on what those solutions might be. Um, at its heart, it really is, Bannon's ideology as such is kind of incoherent. It's a mixture of kind of weird Catholicism, the desire to go back and refight the crusades yeah that's something i'm looking forward to yeah (laughs) it's a a popular um, point of view uh, he'll claim that he's not beating up on immigrants but i'm sorry the the net effect of these policies is to beat up on immigrants there's a scene in american dharma which i puzzled over So Bannon is sitting there in my Quonset hut, derived from 12 o'clock high, and he's talking about his daughter at West Point. His daughter at West Point is part of the volleyball team. And he notices in a corner are boxes where the student uniforms, the student uniforms came from. And it's stamped, made in Vietnam. And he starts muttering to me, muttering to himself and me, about <laughs> Made in Vietnam. And I thought to myself, what is this really about? What's he saying here? Is he saying that our enemy has now become our global trading partner? And that's obscene? That there should be big tariffs? That there should be... Uh, laws that prevent this kind of thing, that we're losing American jobs because we're giving them to our enemies, blah, blah, and blah. Or is it even more deeply racist? Is he saying, you know, these heathens, um, you might as well call them Chinese for all intents and purposes, as far as they're concerned, are creating garments that are being put against the most intimate areas of our women folk in America. <laughs> you think you think you think that's the subtext of it? I think that's floating around in there. You do. I do. Really? What what is it in that? Because, <laughs> because he sets this up in that scene, which I think is 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 pretty telling. And look, it's it's there's nothing revelatory about somebody saying that. I've heard a million people say it. We lost fifty six thousand people in Vietnam, and then I have this you know jumper that says "Made in Vietnam." But he frames this as a war of freedom and liberation. He's talking about the Viet Cong again 
against globalism. And it's an amazing thing for a man who was inspired by you, as he says in the film, to make his movie about Ronald Reagan. And that movie is about victory in the Cold War. These two things are the only incoherence that I saw immediately in that film or in, or in, in, in Bannon's ideology. As he talks about the Soviet Union as this great enemy. And then he talks about the Viet Cong as these freedom fighters that are being bombed by these technocrats like Robert McNamara. It's an, it's an amazing thing. To, and that's is what makes him sound like Chomsky to me. You say the freedom fighters of the Viet Cong and Cong in this global elite who wants to, you know, bomb them into submission. But I keep thinking, I kept thinking while I was making the film, and I'm still thinking along similar lines. You call yourself a populist. Okay, that's fine. Um, man of the people, uh, the forgotten middle class, uh, income, uh, wage inequality. So what's your plan to do about it? Well, your plan, sir, seems to me will build walls on the border. Mm -hmm. Build that wall. We'll keep those Mexicans out of our country and free up all those jobs that they were taking for American workers. Um, we'll end globalism of every stripe and variety. United Nations, who needs it? NATO, bye-bye. Um, let's balkanize the world all over again because we know in the 20th century all these little nation states produced a lovely time for all, particularly <laughs> for the Jews of Eastern Europe. What the hell is he talking about? You, you, made a, you told someone in an interview about your cameraman who's Croatian. And the conversation he had with Bannon about Yugoslavia, which is exactly what you're talking about here. Yeah. Talk about the Balkans being Balkanized. Yeah. <laughs> Gave us a word. So he told your cameraman that, that, that the end of Yugoslavia was a positive thing, right? Yeah. And your cameraman, who is Croatian, re responded in what way? <laughs> it's appalled. Yeah. This has had no positive benefit. It led to chaos, to genocide, to mm -hmm. unspeakable horror. Um, it's n nutty politics. And in the end, it's hard to believe that this is an ideology and not some kind of patent medicine, some kind of snake oil that's being peddled mm -hmm. to a susceptible group in America. Is that your read after you spent, what, five days with Ben? Mm, a lot longer than that. A lot longer than that. Okay. And, and what did you, did you think it's just in the end, like this is snake oil? This is, there's nothing to this? I call it the pie graph question. Yeah. Uh, how do you want to draw up <laughs> the pie? What proportion, what piece of the pie is snake oil salesman? Uh, what part of the pie is true ideologue, hmm. true belief? I don't know. You didn't get any sense of if he believed this stuff. I get a sense that he does believe something. Yeah. Yeah. I believe he's angry. This is the politics of anger. But what is a guy? A fury. Yeah. And look, I mean, I, I, I understand how, and I disagree with people who say that because you went to Harvard Business School and you worked for Goldman Sachs and did quite well in Hollywood, that you cannot be a, somebody who's an angry, ultimately working class kid from Pittsburgh, I think. Is, where is he from? Pittsburgh, right? Virginia. Virginia yeah. Well, is that what he's in Virginia? Um, but, you know, it, it, what is he? I don't understand this. The society that produced him, one would presume, is the one that he would celebrate, that he could rise up through the ranks and do this while being a working class kid. Um, yeah, I'm not. I, that's the thing that I don't quite understand his anger. Like, what sort of precipitated this anger? Did he give you any sense of that? Not really. Partially the sense that he was a failed banker that things did not work out as well as he might have hoped in Hollywood. Not exactly sure what in the end produces this kind of anger. There's a point in American Dharma where I describe 
Trump is the fuck you president. The president who, I mean, if Jesus died for our sins, then Trump says fuck you for everybody. He provides the opportunity. You want to say fuck you to your family? Fine. You want to say fuck you to your neighbors? Go for it. You want to say fuck you to the state, to the world, to the cosmos? Go fuck yourself everything. He's your guy. He really is. It's an immensely destructive. There's a difference, of course, between Trump and Bannon. Because Trump just seems to me a crook, an opportunist, a self-dealer, a criminal. Uh, Bannon, Bannon seems to have this underlying rage, this desire to destroy everything. When I burn everything at the end, it's following his own prescription for what's going to happen to the world. He told, he told a friend of mine, Ron Radosh, a uh, former socialist of the 60s turned sort of neocon, that he was a Leninist. And that he that he identified as a Leninist, not in an ideological way, but in a way that it's 1917 and we have to shoot the family of the czar in the basement. To the Finland station, the closed the, exactly right. train yep. heading towards <laughs> Russia. <laughs> I, I mean, that's I mean, you and you speak about Trump from some position of knowledge because you interacted with Trump and you shot something with Trump that never really. Well, I made. do read the papers occasionally. I read that the, too, but <laughs> you sat in front of him and you did, you, you, you interviewed him. I did. What was that project? And it never materialized, did it? It did materialize. It's on the internet. But it's not a full film though. I was hired by the producer of the Oscars, Laura Ziskin, to mm -hmm. do a film that would run at the very, very beginning of the Oscars. And the brief was that I should talk to people about their favorite movies. Um, it was a five-minute film, mostly sound bites of one kind or another. Occasionally, I used the opportunity to create something that could be used in a longer piece. I had in New York at that time... In the green room at one time, if you can believe this, I had Jesse Norman, I had Mikhail Gorbachev, um, Iggy Pop, and Donald Trump. This is the beginning of an incredibly bad joke. They were all in the same green room together. <laughs> they were all in the same green room. I believe we also added at some point Walter Cronkite. So they're all there. That's amazing. I mean, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and um, Trump complained that Gorbachev, who after all was a previous head of state, complained that Gorbachev was taken before he was. Uh, I interviewed Gorbachev at some length about his favorite films, loves Tarkovsky. We, <laughs> sitting there talking with Mikhail Gorbachev about the mirror. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And then Trump comes in and Trump wants to talk about Citizen Kane. <clears throat> the soundbite I use for the Oscars, Donald Trump talking about King Kong. And the soundbite was, he came and conquered New York. I could identify with that. Um, with it's, the, it's, it's so on the nose. It's the most Donald Trump thing in the world. The big ape. And um, <laughs> But we talked independently. It wasn't used in the final piece for the Oscars. We talked about Citizen Kane. And it was pretty amazing. You can find it on YouTube. You know, when I watched that, he was seemed more coherent then than he does now. 
He probably was more coherent yeah, I, than he, he is now. He seemed like not a total dummy, which is what when you see him doing this uh, al-Baghdadi press conference, you're like, is this a joke? Is this some sort of bit that he's doing? Whereas that he seemed, you know, kind of straightforward, not particularly you know, bright, but he didn't seem like he was incapacitated like he, he seems now. But, you know, that never became a film. Were you thinking about making that into a l- larger film? At one time, I thought of doing something with all of those outtakes, but yeah. that's a long, long time ago now. So how did how did that exact same conceit, not the exact same conceit, but you talked to Bannon about films that he loves, and it's, you start. By the way, I asked him, yeah, uh, do you have any advice for Charles Foster Kane, the protagonist yeah. of Citizen Kane? Any advice for this gentleman? Um, <laughs> And his advice was, this marriage has clearly fallen apart. His advice was, get yourself a different woman. Yeah. That seems about what I would expect him to say. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? But So the 12 O'Clock High, though, in American Dharma, you talked to Bannon about his movies, the movies that he loves. Was that something, I mean, obviously it was something bef- that, you know, you thought of before you even started shooting, because you shoot this in a place that looks like a hangar for B-52s in World War II. No, it's right out of 12 O'Clock High. It's out of 12 O'Clock High, right? No one, of course, who sees, maybe this is my big mistake, no one sees 12 O'Clock High. But it's the essence of Bannon. He goes to Harvard Business School. They show them the whole damn class, 12 o'clock high. What's it about? Winning at all costs. You don't think about right and wrong. You don't think about anything except what? Winning. Winning and more winning. And so here you have a movie about our triumph over fascist Germany taken as a model for the 2016 election, which I suppose you could construe as an attempt to impose fascism in America. But in 12 o'clock high, the, the protagonists are the ones that are bombing the hell out of fascists, right? Yes. So he flipped it in a way. Why in a way? Well, I mean, because he, well, he, in a way that you I don't believe, I don't believe that he's a fascist. Do you? There's an odd, slippery slope here. Um, I suppose you could say what kind of fascist? Is he an old-fashioned 1940s kind of fascist? No, probably not. Um, Beating up on uh, immigrants uh, anti-globalism, um, all of these things have fascist elements to them. Um, probably I would hesitate before calling him an out and out fascist. But how do you categorize this kind of mess? You, 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 you said that you didn't think he was necessarily a populist either. So what would you call Steve Bannon? I mean, it's probably not necessary to call him anything, but I think there's there's a lot of headlines that say, you know, Errol Morris is giving the kid gloves treatment to a fascist, which I think is incredibly unfair. Because I don't, I, I don't think that, I mean, it's necessary to engage with someone like Steve Bannon. I knew a lot more going out than I did w- when I started the film. But yeah, I don't, I, the essence of his ideology, I don't, I don't know how to categorize it. I don't think it's fascism. And populism, I think, is too soft. Maybe opportunism. You think it's that? I think there certainly is an element there. Of course I do. Yeah. He was one of the first people to recognize that the internet had changed everything. Um, and it's an important thing to realize. Uh, I've always been fascinated by this, this famous dissent by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. issue of free speech in a case before the U.S. Supreme Court Abrams. And Holmes wrote about the marketplace of ideas. Somehow you send something out into the world, uh, into the so-called marketplace of ideas. Uh, It's 
pushed around, jostled, challenged, impeached, whatever. And somehow the truth from this process emerges. Uh, that might have been true e e years ago. Might not have been true. Might have been true. But in a world of the internet, one wonders if you have a hundred million people saying untruth and one person saying truth, what chance does it have, really? So what do you do, what do, you do about that? Does it change the way that oh, you... Oh, it's simple. You kill yourself. You kill yourself. Right. I was going to suggest that. I didn't know if that was a little harsh to say. <laughs> you just, just off yourself. And that's the solution, right? <laughs> but I mean, th th the argument in, in a way is made about this film, is that you shouldn't be putting these ideas out there. I mean, I, I find this appalling that... that people who in some way I respect, whether it is David Remnick or other people that I see writing about this, that say you should not be platforming ideas because this is what happens in the internet. You have Holocaust denial videos on YouTube that should be taken down. Um, and I think there is a slippery slope there of what, what we do about these ideas in the internet. I mean, I think that exposing people to Fred and his report is, you know, we have to have some trust in people, don't we? That they can actually filter the good ideas from the bad. And, you know, I think that's what Bannon relies on people not being able to do that, which is what Breitbart is. What's interesting about the Lucher film, Mr. Death, which I should have entitled Honeymoon in Auschwitz because that's where Fred spent his honeymoon. Yeah. An unusual honeymoon destination. Um, People became very angry at early iterations of the film I was still editing because they thought I did not make it clear that Fred was wrong about everything or nearly everything. And part of my style, and it gets me into trouble repeatedly, uh, I'm a great believer in irony. I'm a great believer in allowing people to show you how crazy they really are. And clearly it has limits. Should have learned that by now. And if I resist it, it's only because I'm some kind of perverse motherfucker. Um, in the Lucher film, I eventually had to add material, making it absolutely clear that all of his work on Holocaust denial, he was deeply, deeply full of shit. Mm. To me, it's obvious just listening to him, but it wasn't obvious enough. So you added that. I mean, there's an expert that comes in and says, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. These samples he's taken from Auschwitz don't, don't tell you anything. That's correct. You added that after the fact? You went and shot that later? Part of it was added after the fact, yes. And that was because people, I mean, nobody had seen the film. Who, was complain who complained about it? I show the film in a number of different classes. I mean, is this kind of why you include in American Dharma uh, Steve Bannon saying that he loved the fog of war and it inspired him to get into films? I mean, the way that people internalize your films. I mean, you seem a little horrified in American Dharma that he says that. Of course I'm horrified. Why wouldn't I be? Well, it's because you have no control over how people in internalize the stuff. I mean, would you change a thing about that film so Steve Bannon wouldn't have a positive reaction to it? No. Yeah. But one thing I learned in making American Dharma, Steve Bannon and I sit down and we watch movies together. Movies that he himself suggested that we watch together and talk about. Do you watch them together? Yes. Okay. You see us watching Yes. Yeah. I didn't know if, they, if you had actually sat down and watched the whole thing together. Not the whole thing. He picked scenes that he wanted to talk about. Yeah. From 12 O'Clock High, from Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight, from David Lean's Bridge on the River Kwai, to mm. Stanley Kubrick's Baths of Glory. He picked them, and we talked about them. That has to be one of the more surreal experiences of my life, 
because Steve Bannon saw these movies completely differently from me. I mean, it's total opposite. I mean, you were arguing about certain uh, scenes in the film. Yeah. 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 We argue about uh, Sir John Falstaff in Chimes at Midnight. Is he horrified, depressed by Henry V's rejection? For me, oh. yeah. Yeah, he is. For Steve Bannon, no, fulfillment of Dharma, fulfillment of destiny. It's the three Ds, duty, destiny, Dharma. Mm. Get with it. Well, he says the same thing about Fog of War. He says, no, I don't see your film that way at all. I see it this way. And it seems to have, a, I mean, did, had you heard anyone read that film the way that Steve Bannon had? Uh, no, not really. It occurred to me that this destiny, duty, Dharma deal yeah. Yeah, I found another D for the three Ds. The three Ds. <laughs> um, you could justify anything yeah. that way. After all, just a fulfillment of Dharma. You act in such a way as that you're going to win. He tells a story. He tells these amazing stories in the movie. I think some of the most amazing stories I've ever put on film. Um, he tells you that that the Access Hollywood tape comes out, people think, this guy's done for. Yeah. You don't talk like that. The president of the United States doesn't start talking about grabbing him by the pussy. It's somewhat uncouth. Correct me if I'm wrong. I thought, I thought he was done that day, too. People thought he was done yeah. for. And Bannon... Taking the General Savage role, the Gregory Peck role from 12 o'clock high, lectures his troops. The campaign plane is leaving at 10 o'clock. You're either on it or you're off the campaign. Chris Christie. <laughs> and it is really, really interesting how... The 2016 election is a realization of many of Bannon's craziest ideas that come. Where do they come from? They come out of movies. But he was right, though, wasn't he, about that tape? And I talked to, I went out and shot things with people who said, yeah, we all talk like that where I work. And you guys in your bubble don't understand how we talk. And did Steve Bannon understand those people better than we did? I mean, perhaps. He understood something. Um, he understood how things can really be flipped on their heads so easily. Uh, I'll never forget this moment. Actually, it was in the second debate with Hillary Clinton where uh, Hillary Clinton calls him a puppet. And he says, I'm not a puppet. You're a puppet. You're a puppet. Puppet, 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 puppet. Um, which is the Roy Cohn playbook. Someone accuses you of something. Yeah. You don't miss a beat. You go back and accuse them of exactly the same thing, and maybe no one will notice. It's being done again and again and again and again. It's being done in these impeachment proceedings as we speak. Um it's a good timing for your film, by the way, because it's the reemergence of Bannon now. I've seen a lot of articles about this. He's doing a radio show about impeachment, and he's doing his traveling thing with the media saying, pay attention to me again. I am telling you the truth about impeachment. It's essentially a coup d'etat, and we're talking about it every day from the quote-unquote Breitbart embassy. And he'd been kind of quiet for about, about a year. He'd been in Europe, mostly. He'd been making noise in Europe rather than in the United States. He's back here. For all those people who thought that deplatforming this guy was going to make things better in America, think again. Does that does that ever work? Because that is a trend right now, and it affects, I think, people that do what I do, what you do, is that, you know, I know, again, a lot of people who think this is an effective tactic of deplatforming. Uh, America was freaked out after the election. I was freaked out after the election. And people wanted to believe it didn't happen. Mm. It's a natural 
human tendency. If you pretend it's not there, maybe it isn't. Call it the ostrich <laughs> mentality. I'll stick my head in a hole in the ground and it will all vanish. Although it doesn't vanish, it's still there. Um, I would say America is in danger. We're in terrible danger. And if I had one call is wake up America. We're in danger. And ignoring what's going on around us or pretending that it isn't happening is not going to do anybody any good. From the disaster of Vietnam, which um, you did an incredible film about, the disaster of Iraq, another incredible film about, to this, you know, disastrous moment too. I mean, is this, I mean, it seems so sort of of a piece in America. You have these kind of seems lips. Seems like I like disaster. You do. You're a, dis you're a disaster artist. Yeah. Do you, uh, I mean, do you think that this is, is going to keep going? I mean, do you, you seem rather pessimistic about, about this, both in the film, which was, you know, shot probably what, a year and a half ago? Yes. Um, and today, but we're up against the, the, the potential end of this, either through impeachment, I don't think is very likely, or 2020. Do you think that this continues? I feel burned by this film. Mm -hmm. uh, call me stupid. I thought that I was weighing in on politics and on the 2018 and 2020 elections that possibly I could do some good. I thought it was a mistake just to sit on my ass and to do nothing. But examining this phenomenon was a way of trying to understand it and to deal with it. Uh, I don't think I know that I had a very limited understanding of how fucked up this country is and how crazy this country has become, both on the left and the right. Trump has driven everyone insane. We live in a kind of insanity uh, that doesn't seem to be coming to any swift end. You say you thought, I don't understand why you frame it that way. You say, I thought that I was doing good. I thought that I was, this is an exp exposition of Donald. I think you succeeded. At why, do, why do you think you didn't succeed at that? Well, you're being too damn nice, aren't you? Well, I think you did. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I think it is strange. You shouldn't listen to the seven, you know, shrieking hyenas who say, God, Errol, Errol Morris is doing something terrible by, by giving Steve Bannon a platform. And it also... There is something about shrieking hyenas. They do get your attention. They do, but I think you let it affect you too much. You say it's your best film. So it can't be, I think that you probably know that you succeeded in some way, right? I would hope that the movie would get out to more people. More people would think about it, talk about it. Um, why do you make these films? Presumably, if there is a reason, yeah. that people will watch them, think about them, talk about them, engage in some kind of discussion around them. But I think that that's happened quite a bit. And I mean, you. So maybe I've succeeded. I think you have. Are you trying to make me feel better about yes, myself? How dare you? You're, Don't you're do that. You're so sad. You're just, you're just depressed. Don't do that. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I think the funniest thing that I've ever heard you say, which I think is very funny, and I think this is, it is a piece of this conversation too, is you refer to Donald Rumsfeld as the least Jewish person you'd ever met in your life. Yeah. Which I, is like, this is, you're having a very Jewish reaction to your own movie right now. Donald Rumsfeld is. You know, he's that down the line, tells you exactly what it is. He has no sense of irony. He has no sort of sense of self-loathing or questioning himself. You, you have too much of it. You're, you're doing too much of it. Look at what, like, Fog of War changed the narrative about how we view Vietnam. Without a doubt. Really? Yes. I mean, the, the McNamara book, people are not going through the McNamara book and reading and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. They're watching that film and getting a different sense of the best and the brightest who, who guided us deeper and deeper into the morass of Vietnam. That's your film. It's not the book. Right? I'm trying to be nice to you. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, you do think this film is a failure in that way. This, I, uh, American Dharma. You just, you, it's the way you're framing it. I think each of these movies is an investigation of some yeah. kind. Um, like, who are these people? 
who are these people who have had such a dramatic effect on the destiny of all of us? Mm. Certainly the destiny of America, Iraq, Vietnam, Trump. Who are they? And I just read in some review that was really nice to me that I had failed. I have to fail at everything, I suppose. I had failed <laughs> in Rumsfeld because I had not been able to penetrate his veneer. Uh, I really like, okay, I'll give this away. I really like the Rumsfeld film. Because I've never had a character like that in front of my camera. Not a person who wouldn't crack, but I became more and more convinced as the interviews went on over hours and days that there was nothing there to crack, that it was all veneer, all facade, all acting of one kind or another. It was an amazing, empty performance. And the emptiness is what I'm left with from the unknown known. Um, it may not be entirely satisfying to an audience. Fuck them. Mm. Um, it's satisfying to me because I feel I learned something. Learned something about who these people are who control the destiny of so many, 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 many people. That is a very real possibility that that is just, it's not veneer, that's just who Donald Rumsfeld is. And he's just out there on the surface. Exactly what he gives you is exactly what he is. And he's hiding nothing because there's nothing to hide. He doesn't have any shame. And, you know, the way he prosecuted that war or, you know, his service in the Nixon administration or anything. I, I find it, the one thing I find strange reading reviews of your films, and you've mentioned it too, is that I don't understand, a lot of people don't understand, or I think they don't, but I'm going to ask you what, what you think the purpose of an interview is. Because it seems to be combat for most people. You didn't get enough punches in. You didn't hit him where I wanted you to hit him. I wanted to see him against the ropes and you banging on his, his stomach until he passed out. You know, I, I don't see interviews that way. What, when you go in to talk to somebody who, you know, a lot of Americans loathe, whether it's McNamara, Rumsfeld, or Bannon, are, you're not thinking about this as scoring a knockout punch, are you? No, I don't like adversarial interviews because you learn nothing. It's a way of creating specious drama. I just wrote a piece for Airmail on the nature of interviews. Is it Graydon Carter's new thing? Yeah, yeah. It's in there. Yeah. And part of what I talk about is a good interview for me. And interviews, you know, let's be honest here. There's zillions of different kinds of interviews. There isn't just one way to do an interview one way to talk to another person. Um, you know, it can range from fuck you to I love you. Um, to me, you're creating a situation where people want to talk to you and they want to reveal something to you. And in my experience, the so-called difficult question, the hard-hitting question, the question that throws the adversary on the ropes and forces them to tears or to an apology uh, doesn't really work. The most surprising things I've heard in my career uh, as a filmmaker and in the many, many interviews that I've done with people hasn't come in response to any question I've asked. It's just a slow reveal. Of them. A situation where people want to say things to me, and I was prepared to listen. Why do you think they want to do that? I mean, they're on camera. I mean, there's something, that's the question always with when people look at your interview subjects, like, why are these people talking to Errol Morris? I mean, this is not going to end well for them. I mean, that's what most people would, I mean, Donald Rumsfeld, I'm sure, looks at that film and doesn't say, you know, this is, I think, the great, you know, um, 
you know, monument to my greatness. And this is, uh, you know, exactly what I believe is my ideology. And it's compacted in that film. I mean, I watched that and don't look like, it doesn't look like he comes out of that quite uh, that very well. Rumsfeld at first liked the film. Uh, McNamara never said anything to me about fog of war, but after he died, his son, Craig told me, uh, that his father really liked the fog of war, but don't tell Errol. <laughs> so why do these people, why do people talk to you? I don't know. Why are you talking to me? Because I liked your film. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, but I, it's, it's, it's easy for maybe me. I, to maybe I should have some kind of like, you know, a surgeon general's warning on my chest <laughs> saying talking to me could be injurious to your health. Well, Think yeah. twice. Yeah. I mean, you can watch the films and say, I don't know if this is the greatest idea, but this is mostly, I mean, I've seen this question asked a million times. I'm sure you've been asked it a million times of that, you know, how do you, because the hardest thing as a journalist is not sitting down to interview somebody. It's getting them to sit down in the first place. That can be the hardest part. Yes. Was there anyone that in these sort of great figures of the 20th century who, you know, changed America in the way that some of these figures did that refused to, to do that with you? Tons of people. Which, which one do you regret the most that they, they didn't accede to your desire to be interviewed? I wanted very much to interview James Comey years and years and years ago. And it fell through because he got appointed by Barack Obama as the director of the FBI, and he could no longer do the interview. There are lots of people that I've wanted to interview. But why Comey then? I mean, people tend to think of Comey in the context of Mueller and those things. But prior, was there, was there a bigger story that you were interested in? The story of Stellar Wind and the Fourth Amendment, and the stand against uh, Gonzalez yeah. and Addington. Wow. A forgotten, I mean, almost completely forgotten bit of Bush history. Yes. But, but that, never came, that never came to pass. Why not? And that was just because he became the, he, otherwise he was going to sit down and do it? I believe he was. Yeah. I still would like to do it. I think he's talking a lot more now. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll finish up with this. I mean, I, I appreciate you doing this. And is what are you what are you hoping for this film now that it actually has a wider release? I mean, this will be mostly in kind of art houses and the places that have played your films in the past. But but it, it is streaming, so people yeah can look at it in the privacy. If you don't want to be seen in public watching a Steve Bannon <laughs> film. You can watch it in the privacy of your own it's home. A, yeah. <laughs> and what did Bannon think? It arrives. It, it arrives in an unmarked envelope, a brown paper satchel, <laughs> no markings on it whatsoever. If someone asks you, "What's that?" you can just lie. Yeah. But you can watch it nonetheless, and I would appreciate it if you would do so. And, and, and buy it online. Is it coming out at, at the same time? Streaming at the same time? No, as, I think there's a delay here. There's a delay here. But right. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Well, at least it's out in the theaters. Um, and did Bannon like the film? Yes. I mean, I um, the correct answer should be, why don't you ask him? But yes, he liked the film. Well, the last People like my film. Last time I emailed him, he told me to go fuck myself. So I, I will. I'll well, email wait a minute. That's not about my film. That's about no, you. I just, I'm saying that he, <laughs> I don't think Steve Bannon is a big fan of mine. So if I ask him, like, hey, what did you think of Errol Morris' film? I Bannon, suspect he'll probably say, I thought I told you to go fuck yourself. Bannon said that it's my best film. So we agree on that. <laughs> and he offered to help me promote the film. We did not agree on that. I felt that I should, in this instance, go it alone. Did it make you uncomfortable at all that he wanted to promote this film? I think there's a simple answer to that. Yes. <laughs> Steve Bannon likes a lot of the things that you do. I think you have to sort of reassess things if Steve Bannon loves you as much as he do. Um, Errol, thank you so much for um, allowing me to uh, not really interrogate you, but uh, talk to you about the film. This was an interrogation. No, it wasn't. No, this is a softball. This is softball. Well, was, why, don't, why don't you ask me? No. 
Think of me as a subject who's withholding vital information mm -hmm. and you have to get it out of me. Depends on what the information is. Just try to get it out of me. But, but, but I'm just anything. I'm just <laughs> Your mission is to save America. My mission, but you have the information that could help me do that. Absolutely. One would presume that I knew what that information was or just generally, but what would that be? You just wing it. <laughs> You know, I'm going to let America die because, you know, as you said before, the only answer to all of this stuff is suicide. So I'm just going to let it all collapse. And we can we can end on that. And thank you for ending on sort of a, a, a dour note. I think it's an optimistic note. The fact that that things do come to an end is optimistic. You're, op you're optimistic? Pessimistic. Really? You're, yeah. you're optimistic about you know, the things coming to an end? The country, life, et cetera? Not entirely. Yeah, I don't believe that. Because I have a child. Oh, yeah. Who I rather like. You And who is going to be on stage with you tonight. He is. Uh, interviewing you. Yes. And can you tell us anything about the project you're doing uh, with your son, Hamilton? We're doing a Leary project together. That seems appropriate, yeah. Much to my surprise, he's interested in drugs. I, is that... <laughs> What is, yeah, I mean, I've heard something about this. You know, he talks about it a little bit. A little he's, bit. He's incredibly bright about it. He's like a chemist, though. He's he, a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, most people who are interested in drugs are, you know, that I know ended up sort of sleeping in bus stations. You know, uh, Hamilton knows a lot about this stuff in a rather clever way. So, anyway. Well, good luck with the film. And uh, maybe, Thank you very much. Maybe I'll see you tonight. Good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah, it's perfect. Do you want me to give you my contact info? And then yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll be at the theater um, for the key.